Welcome everyone to Pants on Fire, Exposing Ruling Class Lies. Today's episode, we are talking to Alvaro, Andrew, and Amiad about the upcoming 2023 International Conference. Let's start with introductions. And um, hmm, should we go in alphabetical order? Everyone's first name starts with an A. A-L-A-M-A-N. Alvaro, would you like to introduce yourself first? Yes, my name is Alvaro Rodriguez. I'm the International Secretary of the Communist Party USA. I'm from Texas. Been in the party about 40 years. Welcome. Glad you're here. And then Amiad. My name is Amiad. I've been in the party for a little over three years, and I'm a member of the International Department Secretariat. Awesome. And Andrew. Hello, I am Andrew. I've been in the party for something like seven or eight years, and I'm also a member of the International Department Secretariat. Awesome. So we've got the whole secretariat here. And that's good because we are talking about the second international conference that the International Department is putting on. We had a great conference last year, and it was the first time that this had ever been done. And so they asked us to do it again this year. And I think before we go into the the details about the conference, let's start with a just a kind of a broad overview big picture of sort of the background behind the conference, what we're what we're all about, what is the International Department's purpose? And uh, I guess we'll start with some real basic questions. What is internationalism? And uh, Alvaro, do you want to define? Sure, inter- sure. yeah. I've written a few notes about what I think internationalism is. It's a very broad subject, and there's probably different versions or understanding of what that is, but here's my understanding. And I go back to the original source. Proletarians of all the countries unite is a famous appeal with which Marx and Engels concluded the Communist Manifesto. This document from 1848 became the first and most fundamental program document of the international labor movement. This appeal is an appeal for unity across borders, for internationalism. So that there is your definition there. It's just unity across borders. It addresses itself primarily to the working class as proletarian internationalism. So you heard that term before. Above all, it calls for unity between those consciously acting in the struggle for the cause of the people and the working class in the world movement of communists. In what relation do the communists stand to the proletariat as a whole, they ask, and they meaning the Marx and Engels, and they go on to state that they have no interest that are not also the interest of the entire proletariat. The communists differ from other proletarian parties only in that, on the one hand, in the various national struggles of the proletariat, They emphasize the common interest of the entire proletariat, which they present independently of nationality. Of the workers' parties of all countries, the communists are therefore in their practice the most resolute part, the part which drives the others forward. The working class conducts its struggles in each country as national struggles. But in these struggles, the workers also have international common interests, which emerge independently of nationality. Nationally and internationally, the communists see the task in in emphasizing the common class interests, which provide the strength in the class struggle that drives social development forward. Precisely this class assessment gives insight into the conditions, course, and general results of the proletarian movement. The understanding of the course of the class struggle is also the common thread to to the understanding of the multitude of events which make up history. So what is the communist position relative to international war and peace, which is it's on the agenda today? Communists seek the most peaceful path to a socialist future. As was stated prior to the breakout of the First World War in Europe, and I quote, if the war should nevertheless break out, it is the duty of the socialist parties to advocate its speedy end, to strive all their might to exploit the economic a political crisis which the war has created to raise the people and thereby encourage the defeat of capitalist rule. So to sum up, what international means is to us communists, U.S. communists, is that the struggle of the working class for a better world is a global struggle between capitalism because capitalism is a global system, therefore internationalism. That's what, that's what I understand from what, what international, internationalism means to me, Kyle. Thank you, Alvaro. That's a thorough definition, and I think it's, it's something that a lot of people hear, especially people who are in leftist organizations like the Communist Party USA, and maybe 
don't always have a solid definition for. So that's that's great. And then another thing we hear a lot is imperialism. And I know there's some controversy around that that word and lots of sectarian sort of groups that that kind of form based on imperialism. What is the CPUSA's stance and definition of imperialism? Yeah, I, I agree with you, Kyle, that imperialism is also lead to a lot of different concepts of what that is, the word itself. Some people say it's old-fashioned, it's not longer applicable because they confuse imperialism with colonialism, and that is not the case. We take our, our direction in terms of the significance of this terms from Marx and Engels and Lenin. So Lenin wrote a famous book titled Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism in 1916. So there you go. He defines imperialism as just a stage of capitalism. So that's imperialism is, is capitalism. To communist imperialism is the latest stage of capitalism, Lenin goes on to state. Capitalism has gone through multiple stages from competitive capitalism to national monopoly capitalism to the national dominance of the banks over production and finally the dominance of global finance. So we should see imperialism in economic terms also like that is the dominance of finance capital. Excuse me. In popular usage, imperialism is the policy of expansion and conquest of less developed countries. As the leading company in our party has stated, and I quote, imperialism is not only just a policy option available to the governments of rich capitalist countries, should they choose to use it, though such policy options play an important role in imperialism and in the anti-imperialist struggle. Imperialism is not just a set of conspiracies against poorer countries. The way it's presented is north-south issue. It's has in the capitals of the wealthy capitalist, capitalist countries, which, though such conspiracies also play a role in shaping imperialism. Military intervention in other countries and the vast majority of military bases all over the world are part of imperialism, but only a part. So some people just define it purely in those economic and military terms. And so our comment goes on to say that imperialism is these things, but much more. To focus exclusively on specific policies and experiences is to run the risk of losing the larger perspective of what imperialism really is, where it is going how it affects workers not only in poorer countries, but in rich countries as, like the United States as well. And most importantly, what should we be doing to combat it? So this is it's important to discuss imperialism, not only with respect to how it affects workers in, in poorer countries and in, in developing countries, but also how it affects workers in developed capitalist countries. In the 21st century, that stage is more advanced now than with only one hegemonic imperialist power in the world. And that's what leads to some confusion. So people think that there's multiple imperialist powers and they contrast the United States to Russia, to the UK, even put China even in the mix. But there is only one superpower today. And that superpower, that imperialist power is the United States. There's no equivalent. Other superpowers in the past have been superseded by the United States. Remember when the UK, the United Kingdom, was the primary imperialist power in the world mm -hmm. more recently? Well, that's it's 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 that's that's in the past. The U.S. became one of the two main superpowers resulting from the Second World War. Remember the defeat of 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 the fascism in the Second World War resulted in two main superpowers: the the United States and the Soviet Union. Well, in 1991, the Soviet Union was dissolved after an internal counter-revolution led by the General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev. This resulted in a single global superpower imperialist country, the United States of America. Some may ask, what about Russia, the United Kingdom, the European Union, China, etc.? None of these other countries have the global economic and military control exercised by the United States. Not only is the United States the base of international finance, but the U.S. dollar is also the reserve currency of the whole world. Remember recently when, when the United States took sanctions against Russia by preventing the, the Russians from using the settlement system, the SWIFT settlement system. So that demonstrates that those international controls like that over the currency transactions is controlled by the United States. Not the Europeans that control it, it's the United States. 
So not only is the United States the base of international finance, but the U.S. dollar is also the reserve currency of the world. We cannot overemphasize that. The U.S. does set the rules of the world through the United Nations, World Bank, International Monetary Fund, all headquartered in the United States. And by the way, the Organization of, of American States that's supposed to represent all of Latin America and the Caribbean is also based in Washington, D.C. And if that was not enough, I'm talking about the economic power of this of the United States. The U.S. is the single largest military power in the world. That is the case. International debt is the most oil instrument of domination that imperialism has developed. So that's still a big problem. And that has resulted in the formation of the international alliances such as the BRIC nations, Brazil, Russia, India, China, in South Africa, and now they're being joined by other countries. That, that should be formalized sometime this summer. And, and much of that is in response to this, this economic power exercised by U.S. imperialism abroad. So how to struggle against U.S. imperialism? Because it's not enough to know that U.S. imperialism exists and is a single, single power in the world, but how do you struggle against it? That is what we have to, otherwise we've got just pessimists. First, we have to work towards political defeat of the extreme right, which provides political cover to the military-industrial complex. This military-industrial complex thrives on unending wars, and that's what we've been having for now for decades. To fight imperialism, there needs to be calls for reduction in military spending, with savings going to improve public services. So recently, we had this crisis of the the made-up crisis of the debt crisis. So was there any cause for reduction in the military budget, which is the largest sector of the discretionary budget of the United States? No, there was not. Not from the Democrats, not from the Republicans. But if without a, a significant reduction in military spending, the effects of U.S. imperialism abroad on developing countries, the effects on this country's working poor and so forth is, is, is going to continue. Another form of struggle is international solidarity with the global working class against imperialism. And that's part of the reason for the international conference of the party. Also solidarity with the international communist movement. So to summarize on both internationalism and anti-imperialism, the world is in transition from a unipolar world dominated by the U.S. to one of multilateralism where all countries have a place at the decision-making table. These are dangerous times and times of confusion, and that's part of the purpose of our international conference. We need to be clear on the fundamentals of international relations and how to engage in a united struggle against global capitalism at its current stage, U.S. imperialism. A new world is in birth, and we are part of this change. We are seeing the beginning of the end of capitalism, and one can see the horizon of a socialist world. Hmm. That's, that's, that's my, my response, Kyle, to Obviously, a convoluted, long response to the question of what is imperialism. <laughs> well, it's a it's a it's a complicated thing, and it's we could do probably a whole hour on just talking about imperialism, and uh, and we probably over time will <laughs> with all the different interviews we do. But let's talk about the international department since I have the secretariat here. You, the three of you guys, Andrew and and Amiad and Alvaro are in the secretariat for the international department what is the what is the role of the international department in cpusa and what is kind of the day-to-day work what does that look like for for you guys yes thank you for for giving us an opportunity to talk about this this is very exciting we're not the we're missing one other member of the secretariat so we have four members in the existing in the secretariat so what is the purpose of this international department? All communist parties have an international department. Its primary function is to provide the communist party with information and assessment of international issues, right? We're an internationalist organization. It, it would also it exists to lead the raising of internationalist and anti-imperialist consciousness in our party and beyond. We cannot be successful unless we unite it. And therefore, that's one of our primary functions of this. And that's one of the primary purposes also of the International Conference is to raise internationalist and anti-imperialist consciousness in our party and beyond. Mm-hmm. 
We're also working to strengthen global working class solidarity with communist and workers parties, of which there are currently 118 with over 100 million members and a large number of anti-imperialist movements. So we're proud to be part of a worldwide movement, which is a little bit different from what some of the sectarian small left parties in the United States have, which they don't have that, you know. Our international department has a leading body of committee chairs, the collective we call the Secretariat, which was been mentioned earlier. And under each of these committees are working groups responsible for international department work. The committees include communication, publicity, exchanges, this means solidarity, fraternal exchanges, and then education and technology, of which international conferences are part of. Any other questions, Kyle? Well, I think uh, maybe Amiad and, and Andrew can can chime in a little bit and, and talk about your roles in the international department and, uh, and kind of what the day-to-day work looks like. Okay, so I'll go first, I guess. So the committee I chair is the Communications and Publicity Committee. We have a few different responsibilities, one of them being communication with our fraternal parties around the world. This includes more formal communications, like congratulations for a party congress or major events, a historical anniversary, things like that but also communicating about specific programs, finding contacts to organize delegations or joint educational programs together. So yeah, a lot of communications with our our different fraternal parties around the world. And we also, on the publicity side, create a lot of content to share on social media and hopefully for districts and clubs of the party to share that cover anti-imperialist internationalist topics. We manage the International Department's social media, we create articles, we create content for the website, create content for People's World, the CPUSA newspaper, to again further publicize the anti-imperialist internationalist message. It's one of the great honors of my life that I get to take part in this role. I think one of the most important aspects of being a communist is the internationalist side. The reactionaries like to divide us. They they tell us the, you know, I love your country, nationalism, be xenophobic, foreigners are bad, China's evil, Russia's evil. But in reality, you know, the working class American has more in common with the working class Chinese or Russian person than they do with the billionaires on Wall Street. And working towards that unity and working towards teaching people about the, that unity is really an amazing honor and I'm very grateful every day to be given the opportunity to, to work with the International Department of Communist Party USA. Awesome. And uh, Andrew, also, what is your role like with the with the International Department? What types of what types of work do you do? So the committee that I chair is called the Committee for Technology and Education. It has a dual purpose, part of which is internal technology management. So we do things like managing the redworldreview.org website, database management, the kinds of software that we have to use for mass communication, so on and so forth. And then the other part is education, which is putting on international department webinars. It wasn't that long ago we put on a joint webinar with the Communist Party of China, for instance, on China's relations with developing countries. That's a major part of our work. And also, as Alvaro said, the international conference. It might seem at first like these are two very disparate and distinct areas of responsibility, but we've discovered through practice that actually they're very closely interlinked. So this is a a kind of a major responsibility for the international department. Of course, all three committees are essential to our work. And so let's get into it because the the conference falls under... Education, obviously, we are at so, so much of the work that that everyone in the Communist Party does is about education. And how did the how did the idea of an international conference come about? Because I know last year was the first time it had ever happened. So what kind of led to that? Well, I think Alvaro might be better to talk about this. But from my perspective, I remember an international department meeting where Alvaro had suggested the idea broadly said, we would like to have an international conference and ask for volunteers. And Hmm. I'm the type of person that when no one else responds, I have to put my hand up. I'm compelled. And so I did exactly that. And I was quite surprised a month or two later when Alvaro said, okay, Andrew, get started. It's your project now. So that that was my experience. But I think broadly speaking, the international conference actually serves a dual purpose. Number one is to promote internationalism and anti-imperialist awareness within the party. And number two is also outside of the party. So we want to engage in the construction of this broad united front against the extreme right, as outlined in our party program. And, and part of this means internationalism, as, as Alvaro said, proletarian internationalism, the working classes of the different countries have more in common with each other than with any, any ruling class anywhere, particularly the billionaires on Wall Street. 
So the International Conference brings us together and gives a platform for the voices of our fraternal parties around the world. As Avro said, there's 118 fraternal communist parties in the Solid Net organization. It also promotes this awareness to the general public and to our own membership. It's also important to remember, it can be easy to forget when you're working on the local level in your club, wherever you are, that you are part of a larger movement. It can be easy to trick yourself into feeling like you're some isolated group of just a few people in your local town or city. Uh, but the reality is that that club is a unit of the state organization, which is a unit of the national organization, which is a unit of a world movement with more than 100 million members. So the International Conference really is a celebration of internationalism, as well as an attack against U.S. imperialism and an affirmation of our responsibilities in that regard as the Communist Party in the imperial core. Do other communist parties in in the world have international conferences also? Not that I'm aware of. The only other meeting I'm aware of, of course, is the International Meeting of Communist and Workers Parties, which is held by the SolidNet organization as a whole once a year. The last one was held in Havana and was attended by our co-chair, Rosanna. I believe that was the first episode of the Pants on Fire podcast, right? That was. Yeah. There are other large meetings of communist parties, not necessarily as formalized as, as this conference. There was this year, there was a large meeting hosted by the Communist Party of China that included also non-communist parties but it was general leftist parties. There was a meeting held by the Communist Party of Israel to discuss the when the Israeli military attacked Al-Aqsa to discuss the, the situation there on the ground and what the party was doing. So most parties are very aware of their international relations and they want to keep the fraternal parties aware. Some parties have you know, more capabilities than others. There's the SolidNet website where parties will post information that they find important that they want fraternal parties to know. But yeah, there's also the yearly meeting of the SolidNet members, the International Meeting of Communist and Workers Parties that, that Andrew just mentioned. But as far as like an international conference specifically focusing on education around internationalism and anti-imperialism, yeah, I'm not aware of any other party that does that at this moment. I would imagine that if they did, it would be like, a lot of talk about the U.S. based on based on Alvaro's introduction there, defining internationalism. So it probably makes sense that the U.S. Communist Party hosts such a thing, since the U.S. is <laughs> the problem. We can tell, Kyle. We can tell from the responses to our invitation to join this international conference that other parties really appreciate what we're doing. Many. Communist parties and workers' parties around the world do really do not understand what U.S. policy is and what's it trying to do. And I think it's our responsibility in the belly of the beast to try and explain it to the best of our abilities of what U.S. imperialism is all about. And so we're doing a great service, I think, to our international comrades. But there's other meetings. of. There's also regional meetings of communist and workers' parties. We also see, after those regional meetings, we also saw the surge of, of more broader broader regional movements, such as the Sao Paulo Forum, addressing the issues of Latin America. And there's other international type of forums like that. But these are very useful. And as you can see on the international, at the international level, a lot of these international forums on economic development and many other relevant issues are a very important, they serve a very important function of communicating of not only common problems, but trying to find common solutions to these problems. And so last year's conference was titled Dismantling Imperialism in the 21st Century. And this year... Andrew, what is the what is the focus of this year's conference? So for this year, we decided that we wanted to zoom in rather than tackle imperialism merely as a broad subject, which is what we did in the first conference, which, by the way, it should be said, is the first ever international conference hosted by the Communist Party USA since its founding 100 years ago. This year, we wanted to zoom in, and the theme of this year's conference is No to Cold War 2.0. The containment and suppression of socialist China has for some time now been the primary and fundamental objective of the U.S. empire, and is therefore our primary responsibility in regards to internationalism and anti-imperialism. If we want to oppose imperialism, we should oppose its primary objective. So no to Cold War 2.0. That's right. And uh, let's talk a little bit about the concept of, of a Cold War 2.0, because I've talked to I've talked to several people, some of whom think that we're 
right on the brink of Cold War, some of whom think we're already in Cold War. What is Cold War 2.0? Let's let's kind of define that and talk about that. How do you guys... The the first important point is that the Cold War is currently ongoing. What we don't have at the moment, and this may well not permanently be the case, is we don't have a hot war in the sense that there is not currently direct military confrontation between the parties involved. But the Cold War is ongoing. This has many facets, a propaganda war and an economic war. And there, there was a message we received from Friends of Socialist China for the International Conference. And one of the things that they said is that just the same as the original Cold War was not merely about containing and attacking the Soviet Union, but it was also a war against the very notion that the nations of the world could exercise their sovereignty and their right to independence and the right to choose their own development paths. So is this. This is exactly the same case. China has emerged as a pole for the global south and for developing countries around the world. And all over the world, people are looking to China and saying, we can trade with China, we can work with them, and they don't coerce us. You know, they don't, their loans and so on and so forth don't come with these kinds of conditions that came from the United States and and the IMF and so on and so forth, saying that you must adjust your economic policies and go against your own national interests, so on and so forth. So the symbol of the rise of the People's Republic of China for the world is a symbol of multilateralism and a world where relations between countries grow on the basis of mutual respect for each other's rights and privileges as nations, as opposed to the hegemony and domination of the U.S. over the rest of the world. I think it's also important to note that the the beginning stages of this current Cold War mirror very much the the stages that led up to you know in the cold war 1.0 i guess if we're going to continue with that terminology right the u.s immediately after world war ii started to vilify and dehumanize the ussr and the citizens of the soviet union created nato to you know contain or be defensive but in actuality you know it was early threat against you know the the further expansion of more countries choosing a communist path. And we're seeing that today. NATO is talking about openly, loudly talking about expanding into Asia, getting closer to the Chinese border all the time. The NATO just opened offices in Tokyo. We have the AUKUS military alliance to the south of China. You have the Quad, which includes India, Japan, Australia, again, to the south and southwest of China. So it's a very similar path of you know propaganda dehumanizing the the communist enemy vilifying communism with all sorts of lies and everyone's brainwashed no one has free choice repression of religion and all sorts of ridiculous claims that 10 minutes in any of these countries would prove wrong but you know no one does that because most Americans can't afford to go to these countries and then the military containment and the ever closer encroachment of the U.S. military and its allies or vassals closer to the borders of China. So I think it's very obvious that we're in Cold War 2.0, and it's very dangerous. Just like the first Cold War brought the constant threat of nuclear confrontation, so does this Cold War. Right? It's an existential threat to the human race, and it's something that needs to be taken very seriously. Carl, if I could add something. Sure. The this Cold War that's ongoing right now is a continuation of the Cold War that was exercised against the Soviet Union. So it's meant to contain socialism in the world, and especially strong socialism, like it's happening right now in China with very high economic development and and, and other forms of development, technology, and so forth. So this is a this is a a a potential competition, certainly between the United States and China, but mostly it's about socialism. I think people forget that sometimes it's it's not about great power politics. It's about socialism, and the concept of containment, which is what's being exercised today, comes back from the 1940s when this policy was generated against the Soviet Union and now it's being used against China. And, and the war that's going on in the Ukraine, this proxy war, is part of that effort as well. Expansion, eastward expansion of NATO. And Amyar already spoke about the expansion of NATO into the Indo-Pacific region. And this is all very dangerous and, and fraught with potential hot war. Hmm. And so some of these fraternal parties that that we communicate with 
through SolidNet and through conferences and webinars like these are communist parties that have been, I would say, victims of the U.S. imperialism and and some of these Cold War tactics. Obviously, we have a close relationship with the Communist Party of China and Vietnam. I know I've talked to Amiat about Vietnam. And so what what do we hear from them through our communications with them about the escalation? How how close are we to to a hot war? Anybody want to <laughs> want to take that? That's a scary question. Yeah, we're we're too close, and uh, and so we have to do everything possible to uh, to oppose this this path towards war, and uh, even if it's be because of an error, I think the policy of the Biden administration is to take it to the brink. That's their policy: is to continue this confinement from an economic and in other ways to confine the rise of China and to contain Russia. And uh, but to go to the edge and no more, but it's it's very fine line when you get that far, and any any mistakes could lead towards a hot war. So this is very dangerous type of policy. And uh, I think right now, for instance, the United States is upset that China does not want. I mean, that China does not want to receive U.S. assurances that the United States does not mean to go to a hot war, but. These are idle assurances that do not conform with the reality on the ground. And so the countries like the People's Republic of China is is sees an incongruency between the words and the actions. And, and so they're reacting to that. I think the other thing that I wanted to mention, Kyle, in respect to the focus, well, let's not get off on the subject of, of the Cold War, because we also want to promote the upcoming peace conference that's being sponsored by the Peace and, and Solidarity Commission of our party, which overlaps with the international department, but its primary focus is on peace, growing the helping to grow the peace movement in this country, which is quite weak at the moment. The peace movement in this country has been quite strong in the past, particularly around struggles like the Vietnam War, opposition to the Vietnam War, and, and the war against the nuclear weapons. But it needs to be resurrected or, or, or increased in strength because the challenges that are faced by the U.S. working class on an international scale are much, much more dangerous than before. So the, the, there will be a lot of emphasis on the upcoming peace conference that's being organized in the fall of this year, in November, I understand. And we'll be hearing a lot more specific details about that international conference. The other focus of our international conference, in addition to what's already been mentioned by Amiad and, and Andrew, is a focus on the youth, the youth component of the international communist movement. Because a lot of the young people in the United States and abroad are waking up to the dangers, not only to our our environment, but also the war dangers and, and the bad policies of imperialism towards the developing countries. In, and, and they're getting engaged. They're not exactly sure what's going on in that in there. And, and they need a more, you know, there, there's a lot more need for education. And but they're they're definitely you can see a trend right now. And you don't have to be an optimist to see the trend that the trend is towards the left by young people in this country. Mm -hmm. So we're 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 there's that's a subject of of focus, and maybe Andrew can say a little bit more about that. Well, we decided this year that we would like a much stronger youth component than we had last year. So one of the things that we did is when we sent the invitation to our fraternal parties around the world, we included an invitation to receive greetings and messages and statements from their associated youth leagues. And quite a few parties already have, have sent such statements. The important thing is that I think it was Lenin that said it, it will be the youth that is tasked with the actual task of building a socialist society. And as Alvaro said, there is this, this increase in awareness and political consciousness on the part of young people in the United States, especially compared to where it was even just 10 years ago. You know, so it's important to get these people involved and, and to make sure that their voices are heard as loudly as possible. And what what are some of the top concerns that the that the youth are are expressing? Do we do we have an idea of what they're most concerned about? 
I think they're concerned about economic security. I think they're concerned about poverty. I think they're concerned about the existential threats that are facing us, like the threat of a potential nuclear war, the threat of climate catastrophe, which is being wrought by capitalism and U.S. imperialism, the kind of greenwashing that goes on where the pollution of the U.S. is outsourced to developing countries so that we can blame them for it instead. These are existential crises that, that threaten each of our lives as a collective species. And also, you know, the lack of living wage jobs and so on and so forth, which especially affects young people, I think is pulling them more and more towards our movement and an understanding of the nature of capitalism and imperialism. And so what, what types of sessions, I know for those that, that didn't attend last year's conference, we'll put a link to the YouTube recordings from last year's conference, but for this year, what types of, what are the, some of the main keynote sessions that we're going to have? Are there going to be panel discussions? Are there going to be speeches? And what kind of topics are we are we going into? Well, we expect to have a presentation from Vijay Prashad of the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. The conference will likely open with a keynote address from one or both of our party co-chairs, and it will end with a summary address from our international secretary. In the middle, we'll have presentations from fraternal parties around the world. As, as we announced earlier, the Communist Party of China will be making a presentation, as well as many of our other fraternal parties. The National Network on Cuba will have a thing or two to say about the immoral and illegal unilateral blockade, suffocation of Cuba by the United States Empire. Uh, mm. As well as that, we expect to have a panel discussion actually between the Communist Party of Australia and Jenny Clegg on the issues of AUKUS, the AUKUS trilateral military alliance designed to provoke China and uh, how that ties into the Cold War. And that is the, <clears throat> that's the military base between, is it Australia, the UK, and the US? That's that right. are basically encircling, is that the right word to use? They're encircling China? That's right. And in clear violation of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Yeah, Kyle, they, the intent is to base nuclear submarines in that region. And, and what, think about where those nuclear submarines are primarily coming from. You know, they're, they originally were supposed to be bought from France, but they're coming from the United States. Of course. Need to protect the profits of the U.S. military-industrial complex, right? And each of these submarines that Australia has agreed to buy from the U.S. Are, are billions of dollars that the Australian people can't afford, right? But Australia's foreign policy—I mean, Australia is basically a vassal of the United States. They've gone along with every U.S. imperialistic adventure since 1945. And, you know, we hear our comrades in the Australian Communist Party and other working class Australians talk about how they can't afford these weapons. And yet, you know, this is the, the path the, the government is taking because the strength and hegemonic power of U.S. imperialism. Right? And it always circles back to that. And, you know, again, in AUKUS is just one part of it, right? We have the Quad, you have the expansion of NATO, all designed to surround a threatened China. Well, and let's not forget the defining characteristic of imperialism in the 21st century, as opposed to imperialism in, in the last century, which is that just as capital has a tendency to the consolidation and centralization of originally separate collections of means of production from competitive capitalists into one large monopoly capital enterprise, eventually a multinational capital enterprise, so did imperialism have this same tendency, so that all the formerly distinct imperialist powers tended towards consolidation under one last great remaining empire, which is the United States. And the other former empires, as well as some other countries that have no particular imperial history, although like Australia, many of them have colonial history, operate as vassal states of the United States purely for their interests. Hmm. That's a really good point, that it's it's like mergers. They've all just merged, just like a company merges with another company. And Amazon buys out some small business. That's like the U.S. We're the, we're the Amazon of warfare and economics. Someone recently told me, you know, no free country has foreign soldiers based on it, right? And look at NATO, look at Australia, look at Japan. You know, Germany has as many U.S. soldiers, more U.S. soldiers than most U.S. states, Japan as well, Australia. And it's just these aren't these these countries are basically vassals of U.S. imperialism, as as Andrew said, it's consolidation of global imperialism under one hegemonic leadership. So when did this somebody described it, Kyle, as as occupied countries? So they are occupied 
in there. The United States wants to make it appear like the European Union and, and others are actually independent actors. They're not. They're occupied countries. They've been occupied since the Second World War, and they continue to be occupied, integrated with the U.S. imperialist interests, and they're nothing independent about them. So when they go, they're, they're expanding NATO, they're building these these bases, they're putting these submarines over there. What what justification are they using? Like, what is the U.S. saying? Is this just a, another one of those protecting our, our freedoms? Or what are, what are they, how do they justify this? Well, the United States recently struck a deal with the Philippine government to establish a number of new military bases on top of the ones that already existed there. And what was said to the Philippines and what was said by the Philippine government to its people was that this was for the protection of the Philippines against external hostile actors. Of course, the our fraternal party in the Philippines, the PKP in 1930, made it very clear that the external hostile actor in question is the one that is turning their country into a military barracks hmm. rather than some other power. A common myth of the ruling class is that our way of life, the way they put it, our way of life is being threatened by countries like Russia and, you know, China and, and other countries. And so the defense of democracy is the way they're posing it. It's the defense of democracy and our values around the world, which is all a lie. It's a ruling class lie. And I, I'm glad that Pants on Fire is exposing some of these lies because some people believe them. They, they want to believe that it's true, but it's not true. Yeah. So this ruling class lies need to be exposed. They will not be able to stand a bright light on them. I think it's also important to highlight that a lot of the expansion of NATO is occurring in countries that are safe are facing similar neo-fascist uprisings like we have in our takeovers, like we're having in the U.S. Finland has the, they call themselves the true Finns, the Swedish uh, largest party in the Swedish parliament is also an extremist party. Japan has a very right-wing government at the moment. So Italy. Italy, Italy has a fascist government party in power at the moment. Poland has a, if not fascist, a religious, ultra-conservative nationalist party, the Justice and Justice and Judgment Party. I forgot their name. Anyway, so you see the the very same struggles that the working class faces here in the United States is also happening in other capitalist countries, right? There's a rise of fascism, a rise of militarism, and all these countries, again, continue to march along the path of imperialism and to the brink of war and global disaster. And so, Alvaro, and, and you've mentioned Russia several times, and uh, but and we've also mentioned that the basis of the Cold War 2.0 is against socialism. Where does Russia fit into that, that conversation? They they are a competitor of uh, with U.S. imperialism because Russia is like the second largest military power in the world and it's also a growing developing country. And and now Russia has found common cause with the People's Republic of China. They have a special relationship, in and the United States wants to create divisions among them. Keep in mind that. The reason that China was not attacked in the more recent past is because the United States had a strategy, and their strategy was to use China against the Soviet Union to divide the two largest socialist countries in the world with the intent of giving, giving capital and, uh, and influencing the direction of the, of the society in China towards capitalism. And when that did not result in the expectations that the United States had, then they started attacking China. So the reason that Russia is being attacked, in summary, is because it's an ally, it's allied, just like many other countries around the world, they're allying together against the oppression of U.S. imperialism. Hmm. So they're the countries that are aligning themselves with China versus the countries that are part of the U.S. imperialism block. That that makes sense. And uh, China's doing a lot of good things in the world and helping a lot of countries out. Yeah, take the situation with respect to India. India has had some border issues with China, but yet India understands that it's, 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 it's better to be with China than to be with the U.S. So what has happened on this war, this proxy war in the Ukraine, 
is that the sanctions that were used against the Russians to prevent them from selling their oil has backfired. Now, a lot of the oil is being sold to countries like India, and they in turn sell it on the international market. So, so a lot now. India is part of the BRIC countries, and and, and combined, the BRIC countries now have a, a a very large gross domestic product together, larger than the developed the the G seven. So many countries are, are 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 coming together because they see that the United States has just brought war to and 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 in conflict to the regions like the Middle East. So many countries in the Middle East are now joining the. The BRI, which the you know the the the, the initiatives that were taken by China with respect to in, international economic development, in the Belt and Road Initiative, Belt and Road Initiative, and and they're also joining. For instance, recently China was able to use its influence in the Middle East to create a peace between between the between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Which is which is a big source of of conflict in the region, and so I think that 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 agreement is going to lead to further agreements in the Middle East. That is going to remove some of the tension that existed there and the potential for breakout of war. What are you guys looking forward to most at this year's conference? What I'm most looking forward to is a furthering. As I said last year, we decided to focus on the concept of U.S. imperialism in general. The title of the conference was Dismantling Imperialism in the 21st Century. This year, we are zooming in and talking a little bit more specifically about our party's particular responsibilities in the belly of the beast, as we say. So what, what I'm looking forward to is the results of the conference. I'm looking forward to a reinvigorated idea of taking on issues of imperialism and issues of peace Within the Communist Party USA, I'm looking forward to following up the international conference with the peace conference and rebuilding the peace movement to the United States, which has been crippled for a long time now, and building our party and building our movement. Amiad, how about you? Well, I would echo everything that Andrew said, but to say something different, you know, for me, anytime we get messages from our fraternal parties, anytime we can work internationally, it warms my heart. I am, you know, I'm a staunch internationalist. I, I really get motivated and excited by the idea of the international working class working together. And to see that happening right in front of my eyes and to be part of it is very inspiring and very motivating. So that, that's definitely a highlight for me. And Alvaro, as the chair of the international department, what are your expectations and what are you looking most forward to? Well, one of the things that, that has given me a lot of enthusiasm is the reception that we're getting. We're getting a little bit different reception. We're getting a lot more fraternal parties contributing to our international conference and very early on. And that indicates a trust and indicates a, an enthusiasm from fraternal parties that we're heading in the right direction. So that gives me a lot of a lot of you know satisfaction. The the other one is that after the first international conference we got a lot of comrades and we got a lot of friends of the party and friends of socialism applied to join our party and applied to join our international department we 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 hope that you know that we do good enough work that we will also create a big source of interest in our party and in our international department out of this effort the people internationalists that already exist in the United States and anti-imperialists in the United States will find a home in our party, in our international communist movement, and that we will be able to build a movement and make it stronger as a consequence. Mm -hmm. And where can people go to get more information about the conference? Is there a website? Is there a schedule program they can see? I, I didn't even ask you guys. I know last year it was it was a two-day event. This year it's just one day. And so where can where can people find out more? Well, we have not officially published the program schedule just yet. We're still waiting on confirmation for one or two things. So before we finalize that, we want to make sure of some details. But you can go to redworldreview.org and cpusa.org, and in particular, redworldreview.org slash international conference. And you can sign up there. You can share it with your friends. And if you are interested in helping out with our essential work in the International Department of the Communist Party USA, you can go to redworldreview.org slash sign up and get in touch with us. And we'll be happy to hear from you. Awesome. Amia, what about the on the social media front? Are there any accounts people should follow to get updates? 
No, we did some live tweeting yeah. last year. Yeah, last year we had some live tweeting. Hopefully we'll have that again this year. The International Department's Twitter handle is at CPUSA Department. Good choice to follow it anyways, because we post a lot of interesting articles and share information from our comrades around the world on there. We also have a TikTok, which will have some clips from the conference once it's ready. That is, is it called a handle, I think, for TikTok as well, but it's CPUSA International. And then there's also the general CPUSA social media. You have Communist USA on Twitter. There's a CPUSA Facebook as well. Follow and get involved, get inspired. There's lots of local work, you know, even even local clubs get involved in internationalist work, whether it's through peace rallies or solidarity actions. So definitely get involved on the local level as well. Yeah, I know the people in my local club are getting involved because I'm asking them to help me do stuff. <laughs> so there's they're, they're working. But I, it, I forgot yeah. to mention the YouTube at IDCPUSA on YouTube, right? We have so many platforms now. I have to keep track of it all. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and I'm going to put the links to all of that in the in the show notes so people can check those links out and subscribe and follow and you'll get updated as we get closer to that date and redrollreview.org has all the info that you need, how to register and it's going to be when is it going to be? July. This will be on the 29th of July starting at noon Eastern time. All right. So in the meantime, between now and then, listeners can go and register, and they can also go on the YouTube and check out some clips from last year's conference. And if they want to get involved, we'd be more than happy to, to welcome them on board. Anybody have any final thoughts or questions, anything that I didn't get to that you wanted to address? No, just to thank you, Kyle, for your support and, and for facilitating this interview. I think we were able to get a lot of information out on, on both the international conference and the international department and, and the work that we're doing in, 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 in exposing some of these concepts and, and myths the ruling class is putting out. So thank you again for your support. I think we should also acknowledge, Kyle, the amount of work that you've done for us for this international conference and, and my committee, as well as Anamiad's committee. You've pulled a lot of weight in the media group. And I know you said you've been dragging some people in from your club there as well. That's fantastic. So I, I, I really want to say thank you very much for, for all that you've done to help us. Oh, absolutely. I'm happy to help however I can. And I'm happy to drag other people in and get them to help too. Amiya, do you have any closing thoughts? Anything you wanted to, to say? No, nothing to add. Uh, no, but echo Andrew's thanks and praise for you and all your hard work. Thank you. Thank you to all three of you for for joining today and we will look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you for listening to Pants on Fire, Exposing Ruling Class Lies, the podcast produced by the International Department of CPUSA. Visit our website, cpusa.org, to learn more about the party. Follow us on Twitter at CPUSA Department and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. 